episode of the Agile Weekly Podcast. I'm Clayton Langelzigich. I'm Derek Neighbors. And I'm Roy Vanwater. And we've got a backlog of items today uh, that we wanted to talk about. So the first one is Sprint Zero. Sprint Zero. Derek, tell us your thoughts. Yeah, so uh, uh, one of our regular contributors to Agile Weekly, um, BrainsLink, had posted something about Sprint Zero and the value of Sprint Zero and that... Um, those in Scrum maybe or in Agile um, tend to devalue Scrum Zero, and the, in the enterprise environment, it is really necessary oftentimes to have a sprint to zero. Cowards, stop having enterprise environments. <laughs> and so, you know, my general <laughs> response back was pretty similar to cowards and stop having enterprise environments, yeah, okay. which was that. You know, I think his argument in the article tended to go around, you know, it's irresponsible to have no architecture, to have no kind of right. plan going in. And that what happens is if you just hit the ground running, sprint one, and do, you know, the, the quickest thing to get working, you know, come sprint four, five, six, something down the road, you realize that you've made this real, really horrible choice um, because you didn't really think out kind of the bigger picture and how it interfaces with other things. And so you end up having to undo a bunch of work. And so that it actually causes more problem than if you just violated these scrum principles and did a scrum zero. Um, my response back was, you know, I think that the danger in that is that it gives this false sense of security and that, gee, if we only sprint, if we only spent an additional sprint before we did work to plan it, then we won't have any problems and everything's going to be right. And what I would tend to find is when I've seen sprint zeros, did all of the same problems happen in four or six weeks in all of the decisions you made? You you found better decisions That's, for them, and you want to undo things. That, so why bother with the first sprint zero to begin with? Well, that's I think the the difference. I think that the thing that unifies them is that the the thing that you find out in week four that causes you to regret the decisions you made in week one are things you don't know in week one. Correct. So if you spend a week in z- week zero, whatever, trying to set stuff up, you still don't know what's in week four. No matter how much time you spend on Sprint Zero, if you have five Sprint Zeros, you're still not going to discover what's in Sprint 4 until Sprint 4. So there's a concept in uh, the book Guided Object-Oriented Software by Test that talks about having a walking skeleton, which is kind of the idea of build something that you can deploy that actually exists, right? So like you can press deploy and it goes to production and it works. So would you recommend that if a team wanted to avoid a Sprint Zero and they actually wanted to deliver value in the first Sprint, would it be okay if they're, uh, they started with maybe a bigger Sprint than... But, you know, maybe they thought we're going to do two-week sprints. But if we look at the work to get this entire thing working, it has to be three weeks. Look, how should they handle if, that? If you if you have such, I don't know, like, it, it shouldn't take you that long to deliver your well, initial piece of value. No, like, that's, well, that's I mean, bullshit. No, that's your root problem. So you're like, let, yeah. assuming that you have one leg, how are you going to run this one-meter sprint? Like that. Well, I, I, think, I think that that is the, the bigger issue at hand is I think when you believe that you couldn't put a, a bare skeleton out, in under you know in and so in brains links kind of comments his thing was i would never advocate a 30 day sprint zero but i think a week or two sprint zero makes sense mm-hmm. i think what they're, what they're, they're saying is you know well we need this time to do this to do this research i don't think they're talking skeleton i think they're talking to do the research to even do the work i would argue that if you can't do a skeleton within a sprint a two-week sprint you have something wrong with your tool set or your skill set okay. that probably needs adjusting much more than a sprint zero is right. ever going to and fix it's, for And you. it's going to hurt you every single sprint, That's not correct. just the first sprint. That's correct. All right, so we've we got to move on. So the next topic we want to talk about is performance testing. Um, I think you should also call this a waste of time because pretty much everyone seems to waste time when they do this. Uh, has, have you guys ever seen anyone do performance testing where it has been valuable? Yes and no. 
I've never seen anybody do performance testing uh, beforehand yeah. uh, be valuable. Meaning, uh, usually when people do performance testing, they don't do it on their real environment. So, you know, all these little things that are really the performance bottlenecks are never seen. It's, you know, we're worried about database read and write, so we're going to test the crap out of that. But it's latency of the network that really kicks their ass, and they don't know that because their local network is has no latency. But when they put it up in the cloud, the cloud has latency or vice, you know, things like that. Uh, I, I think the lean startup methodologies really start to push towards uh, get it in customers' hands as soon as humanly possible. If you're worried about scaling, limit the number of users that are allowed to use it and open it up as you go until you hit a bottleneck and then go in and start to test around some of that. Um, I think you could do some things uh, ahead of time to um, potentially give you some best practices, whether it's tools like New Relic or Jmeter, or, or standard things that you could kind of run that might give you some semblance of it. But I think going hog wild and creating all sorts of harnessing mm-hmm. and everything else is just a waste. And, and if you're talking to your, you know, communicating effectively with your users, they're going to tell you really early on. Like the thing, two things you should be doing is talking to your users and being able to deploy really quickly. So you'll get feedback really quick if your if performance is going to be an issue. I mean, I've had a project that I worked on in the past where we had reports from users saying like, hey, this is too, when we perform this action, it has taken an unacceptable amount of time and we're not going to be able to use this tool because of it. And we did what we were able to do was go in and uh, we wrote a performance test, which just exercised a particular functionality that wasn't working, right? And then had it like whatever, hit it like 5,000 times in a second or whatever and see how long the response was. And then we're able to do like a binary search for the problem. But it was based off of replicating actual um, production environment. Like we knew exactly what uh, what was what was going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would say, is there a place for non-functional requirements? And kind of, you know, if you're a product owner, could you say that, you know, this... These actions should should support this much throughput and this much, you know, with this much latency kind of thing. I, I think that it's totally okay to do constraints like that. I think that you have to realize um, that if that is not your current customer standard, you run the risk of doing a lot of waste. So if mm-hmm. you say, I've got this app that's got a thousand users, but I'm going to make the constraint say that it's got to do with two million concurrent users or I'm not going to accept the story. The truth is, if you don't really have two million concurrent users on a regular basis, you're probably wasting your time trying to write stories even, that have that as a constraint. But even if your constraint is I need to be able to handle a thousand concurrent users and you're a product owner, oftentimes, like I, I'm hoping that most of the time the product owner is looking at the story before it goes into production. So does that mean you have to write a performance test around every single feature that you write? Uh, my thing would be that if you really had two million concurrent users on a regular basis, you mm-hmm. probably have testing frameworks in place to test that stuff already, so you're not having to go build all this. That makes sense because uh, you already ran into. Yeah, I think I think the, the problem is when you're going to release a feature right away and you have no idea what the you know how many people are mm-hmm. going to use or whatever. You go and spend all of this time doing performance testing. I think that's foolish. I think yeah. when you hit performance constraints, you start to build those tools, and then you can continue to use those tools as your software evolves, as your user base evolves. Okay, so moving on to working agreements. Uh, this is something I think that can be very powerful for teams. But we had a situation. Uh, recently where a team made a working agreement around how other teams interacted with them. Uh, is that really fair to call that a working agreement? Hmm. Well, I think it's fair to make a working agreement on how that team reacts to other people interacting with them. So, for example, if I have a team that is constantly getting interrupted by uh, a stakeholder, Anybody, for example, sure, whoever, and our, our, we have a problem where some of our team members will give into it, and we'll go and talk to, we'll go and help them out and hurt our sprint because of it. I could totally see us having a working agreement within the team saying like, hey, if we get interrupted, you need to bring it up with the entire team. You can't just make the call on your own to go and spend the time helping that stakeholder. 
Like, we're not going to say that we, like, 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 the fact that it needs to be discussed with the entire team, I think it's a totally fair work in agreement. And that would, it would, that would affect how you interact with outside people. So I, I think, to me, this is largely about how things are communicated. So if uh, the three of us are all on a team and we agree that we don't like interruptions and so that we want to do X, Y, Z, and we're going to do little flags or do something that we're busy, mm-hmm. and if somebody comes in... I, I think that if we're going about our work, we put our flag up, somebody comes in and I say, you know, I'm sorry, we're going to have to tell you in 15 minutes we will deal deal with your problem, but, you know, right now we need to stay focused in this. Um, I think we can say we have a working agreement. And what we're doing is we're signaling to somebody else, you know, hey, you know, I can't help you right now here. And if they question it, we can say, like, we've got this internal working agreement that we've agreed upon this. That'd be really great. I think when the three of us say we're going to have a working agreement that works like this and we're going to send it out to everybody in the company and say, by the way, when you work with us, this is exactly what you're going to do and you're going to like it. And by the way, this is our new working agreement, us collectively, that's bullshit. And the reason it's bullshit is because you didn't ask the other people that are coming to interrupt you to say like, hey, you know, when you interrupt us, it really bothers us and we would like to come up with a way to do that. How how would it work best for you? So I don't think that the internal working agreement is a bad thing, but I think if you go out and you sell it as this is how we're now doing business and by the way, here's the memo and read it and you're going to abide by it by law and whatever, Mm -hmm. and then you call it a shared working agreement amongst everybody, that's bullshit. If you say this is our working agreement that we've agreed upon and we'd ask that you please respect that with us, I think that's a little bit different. Okay, next up, backlog uh, gardening or backlog grooming. Um, is this maybe something that is avoided or people don't do enough and you kind of, maybe you do a story workshop and you generate a whole bunch of stories and they kind of just sit there and you, you think you're just going to work on them? Um, grooming a backlog is done in the middle of planning, right, while you're trying to give a Give your team stories? I think typically by the book, maybe it's more done you know, beforehand where you're going through making sure things are prioritized. And so you're saying you shouldn't spend the first half of planning reorganizing everything <laughs> in your backlog. That's probably a sign that you're not doing any kind of gardening, right? You know, you're, that means you're agile if you do that. That's, that's right. true. You're at no. the drop of a hat, you can reorganize <laughs> anything. So the reason I said gardening instead of grooming is when I look at grooming, uh, that's cutting the hair, that's picking the nits out of you know the lice off of your head, etc. And I think that that's how most people view backlog grooming, which is most people have the problem of I've got an enormous amount of crap or features that I want to deliver, and most of my effort is trying to pull stuff out that I don't really want to do or to get more details to kind of clean up and prettyify, you know, and get it ready. But I think that a lot of organizations on existing products, they have a much different problem, and their problem is one of that we don't know what features to actually be adding, right? We don't know how to talk to our customers, so we're just adding crap that doesn't matter. Um, And so what happens is it's like, oh, I'm not really sure, and so it's like, who called us last? What were they pissed off about? And let's throw that into the product instead of actually saying like, hmm, have we already plowed that field before? And is it going to go fallow if we keep planting on it? You know, what kind of vegetables do we think people are going to want to feed? And if you take the more of the gardener's approach of, you know, hey, let's be strategic about what we're planting and the cycles of it. I I think it's a little bit deeper than just saying like, hey, we've got more stuff in the backlog than we can see. Let's trim the fat. I think it's about really doing, it is about trimming the fat, but it's also about what you're planting, what you're putting in, all of that kind of tending to it. It's it's hard work. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think from a perspective of if you have, maybe if it's a new product, you're obviously going to have the problem of you probably have a bunch of stuff, and you're going to have to change things like you said. Uh, I do do like the idea of saying, you know, there's different cycles, you know, different seasons, you might plant different things. Um, Is it maybe that it takes too long to kind of sow the seeds for 
you know, like the things to sprout before you realize them. And those get, those are the things that get kind of crushed uh, in the garden and you don't, you know, some new feature, the person, the next person yells the loudest. So you kind of say, oh, we need to dig that stuff up, even though it's barely, you know, even got started. Yeah, well, I think some of it, too, is like if I look at maintenance, maintenance on existing projects are kind of like weeds, right? They start to choke out new growth. Um, people get totally bogged down in the maintenance of things instead of being able to do new things. But I think a lot of it is is it's really hard work, and most product owners are not dedicated 100% full-time to their project, or they've got other duties that they've got to do beyond that. Um, it's very difficult for them to work with the team as well as work with the customer to do demands, as well as work with the business to say financially, how are these things working? And so usually what we'll see is somebody does one of those things really well. Either they work really fabulously with the teams, but they're falling down on listening to customer demand or doing the business side, or they do really fabulous with business, but the team hates their guts and they're not listening to the customer. Or they listen to the customer, but they don't understand the financial decisions that they're making and they don't get along with the team because they're never present. I think it's very difficult to manage kind of all three of those hats as a product owner and so usually whatever is my strong suit i'm going to gravitate to and i'm going to throw the other ones kind of by the wayside unless somebody forces me to deal with them all right next up cross-functional teams uh this seems kind of like something that people started saying a while ago and it's kind of stuck but i don't know that everyone really agrees on this or knows what it really means i think the the question that most people have is what does it mean Right. So uh, some people cross functional team means anybody on the team could do absolutely anything. Um, And usually the detractors that are against cross functional teams say, oh, that's the fastest way to mediocrity. You know, you can't be a jack of all trades, master or none. You get a bunch of people that know everything, you know, but they only know it at a surface level. And so you never get the the awesome gain of this super specialized stud muffin of a team member. Those guys write the best code, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, And I think. I think more pragmatic viewpoints of what cross-functional teams are are that people are going to have things that they are better at than they're not better at. And if I'm on a team, it's not seen as I can do absolutely everything at the same level as everybody else on the team. But if push came to shove, if we said we had to push this feature, I wouldn't throw my hands up in the air and go, "Uh, not my job. I don't know how to do it. We have to wait for Stevie to come back in order Mm -hmm. to do it. I might say, like, this is going to take me 100 times longer than Stevie, but, like, I'm full bore willing to get in. I think it's a lot more about, like, collective code ownership. And if you took that beyond a product, it's collective product ownership is what you're, what I think you're really saying when you're a cross-functional team is we are all contributors to this team. We all succeed or fail together. I don't think it's, you know, somebody can't be better at database and somebody be better at design or whatever, right? I think... I think that that's a trap that people fall into when they get too into cross-functional. Yeah, you wouldn't want to necessarily like stomp out the. I guess you don't want silos, but you wouldn't want to stomp out the specialization. You know, you would you would benefit from having someone who knows a lot about SQL maybe mm-hmm. on your team, right? Uh, but you wouldn't necessarily structure the work or the product in these are the SQL stories, right? right? Well, I can't do the work because I am not the SQL guy. Right. Like, I don't think you'd want that. You'd say, I'll gladly take this story or this work, but I might go see Clayton because he's the SQL guy and this is really complex stuff, and I would really like to pair with him so that okay. it's faster and it's done better and that we're spreading the knowledge of how this stuff works. Yeah, I think collective code ownership is a big part of that. Um, everyone having the shared responsibility for the entire thing, right? Yeah. Right. And being able to deal with the full stack. Like you and I were talking about that yesterday mm-hmm. where uh, it was like a deb- debugging a problem that went all the way from the client to the server through the database and like involved everything. And in the past, like I don't know how it because uh, the team we're working with didn't used to be cross-functional. They used to have segregated responsibilities. So you'd have a SQL guy and a front-end guy and a back-end guy and all of that. Like, I can't imagine how you would have solved this problem. You would, I, you would have had to have all three people 
working together, which I know they didn't do. So, like, how how would that problem have ever gotten solved? And very, that happens all the time. Slowly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we see this a lot in siloed teams where it's like a problem comes in and it looks like it's a visual problem. So the front-end guy gets it and he pushes the pixels around a little bit. So this is not a front-end problem. This is a back-end problem. I'm making all the right calls, doing all the right everything. The back-end's got to be the problem. So then the back-end guy gets it and he pushes some things around and says, you know, oh yeah, they're sending me the right thing, but then we're sending it off to a third party, to the database and the database thing. So we call her up and right. she says, nope, you know, all the SQL things are handed back, but we, you know, we hand it to this other third-party vendor right. and they must be screwing up. And so what happens is you get this like, chain where this thing takes six weeks to deal with because right. and it's, it's got going, a cascade back and forth yes. right right and then it's, i fix it i fix it i fix it and all the way back right up, it, so. it ultimately goes through the whole cycle and it's really nobody's fault right mm-hmm. but in reality it's a little bit of everybody's fault because well, who, the, who the hell cares whose fault it is right, right. That, no but i mean it's it's easy to bunch it up and say this isn't my problem hand it to yeah. the next guy because it's Keep a really it hard complicated thing that's hard to shoot so it's like easier for me to go like nope i'm accept- accepting the connection so it's not my fault it's somebody else's fault and then that person gets it and goes yeah but you're giving me the wrong thing it's you're, you know, and so you mm-hmm. play the hot potato game. Whereas if you kind of are a cross-functional team, it's like, hey, I've got to deal with this no matter what. We're going to deal with it. All right, that wraps it up for today. So thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye bye. Is there something you'd like to hear in a future episode? Head over to integrumtech.com/podcast where you can suggest a topic or a guest. Looking for an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news, techniques, and events in the Agile community? Sign up today at agileweekly.com. It's the best Agile content delivered weekly for free. The Agile Weekly podcast is brought to you by Integrum Technologies and recorded at Gangplank Studios in Chandler, Arizona. For old episodes, check out integrumtech.com or subscribe on iTunes. Need help with your Agile transition? Have a question and need to phone a friend? Try calling the Agile Hotline. It's free. Call 866-244-8656.